Hello, this is Joshua Mack from Cornerstone Bible Church, and we're talking marriage and uh, family. And today I want to talk a little with you about uh, the importance of purity in the marriage relationship. And uh, this is an important subject. Uh, Certainly it's important to God. God does not stutter when he talks about the consequences of unrepentant sexual sin. He actually says some shocking things, like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 6. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Hebrews 13, verse 4, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And that's just reality. That is what's real. God takes these kinds of sins very seriously. Even though on television and in movies for years and years, they've been trying to make it seem as if adultery and sexual morality does not matter, it does matter. God is going to pour out his wrath on those who don't repent. And I know you know that. Yet the sad fact of the matter is that even though we know what God says about how he's going to judge these kinds of sins, and even though we know how God wants us to hate these kinds of sins. And some of us even have begun to understand why God wants us to war against these kinds of sins. In spite of all of that head knowledge, it seems like within the church, there often are almost as many who fall to these kinds of sins as there are outside the church. I read of a pastor recently who said that 75% of the people who come for premarital counseling within his church have fallen into some kind of sexual sin. That's within the church, and he happened to be the pastor of a pretty good church. And that's pretty much in line with what statistics are telling us about the activities of many young people within the church who who claim to be believers, and not just young people. And the question is why? Like, why are those within the church struggling in a a very similar way to those without. And I thought we could look at the Apostle Paul and what he has to say in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, because I think he gives us a couple of hints as to why this is such a problem, even within the church. And the first hint, and maybe it's not really a hint, the the first reason this is a, a problem even in the church, is the fact that there are people, even in the church, who claim to be Christians and aren't. Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3 verse 5, he's urging Christians to put to death what is earthly in them. But his whole exhortation hinges on the word therefore or or because. Really, in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, he's saying, because of what God's done for you in Christ. And what has God done for believers in Christ? Chapter 2, verse 20, if then you died. 
chapter 3, verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, that becoming a Christian involves a fundamental change. The reason we can say no to these kinds of sins is not because we have super self-control. It's not because of how we feel. It's not because we're really religious. It's not because we had a great quiet time. It's not because we've gone to church for a long time. The reason we can obey Paul's commands is because of what God has done for us in Christ. And so if you're a believer, it's not just that you change your opinion about Jesus. It's that Jesus changed you. I always love how John Newton put it. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not even what I hope to be. But by the grace of God and the cross of Christ, I am not what I used to be. And so if you're a Christian, although you used to be in bondage to the world, that's not true any longer. You now at this point have a new life. A definitive once for all break has been made. You've been rescued from the power of sin and no longer has the hold on you that it once had. You no longer live under the lordship of sin. That's an essential part of what it means to be a true Christian. That's not just true for a super Christian. That's true for every Christian. And any growth in godliness is based on that. We don't overcome sin because of our natural resources. We can only overcome sin because of what God has done and is doing in us. The problem is that there are people out there who take the name of Christ, who who call themselves Christians, and they have never died with Christ. They've never been raised with Christ. And so they're religious and maybe even serious about their religion, but they haven't been transformed. And so it's not surprising then that they're living in sexual morality and thinking like the world thinks because there has really been no decisive break in their lives from the world. They may look like Christians, but they're they're not. Uh, I, I think uh, it was John Owen, actually, who said, unless a man is a true believer, one who truly belongs to Christ, he can never mortify a single sin. And so if you've got a person who's just given over to sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, it's not going to do much good to just say, stop, 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 stop. First, uh, if they're ever going to change, and I guess I should make this more specific, if you're stuck in sexual sin and uh, you, you're not changing, it might be time to go back and ask, am I really a believer? Uh, because there's no way if you're not converted that you actually are going to be able to overcome this sin. So, so that's one reason. That's one reason why uh, sometimes people in the church struggle with these kinds of sins in the same way as people in the world uh, because they're not, they're not Christians. But that's not the only reason. And I, I want to say that loud and clear. <laughs> Non-Christians aren't the only ones who fall into these kinds of sins. The fact that we've died a very real death with Christ to sin once for all in the past, the fact that God has transformed us in such an amazing, remarkable way does not mean that we've somehow been so delivered from sin that we're not going to struggle with it. And I'm talking about struggle with serious sins. Christians struggle with serious sins while they're in this world. And I could prove that to you in a number of different ways, but probably the simplest way to prove it would be just to look at Colossians 3 verse 5. Paul says, Put to death what is earthly in you. And he's talking to who? He's talking to people who are already Christians. 
So this verse is not about how to become a Christian. This verse is about what we must do as Christians, which tells us that Paul recognizes Christians face and struggle with these kinds of temptations in a very real way. This is not an imaginary battle. This is war. Someone once said, when God saves us, sin loses its authority, but not its being. It loses its rule, but not its life. And so the fact that you are a believer doesn't mean you're not a sinner, which means if you are just kind of sitting back as a believer and you're not seeking to actively apply the gospel to your life, you're not obeying Paul's command here to put these kinds of sins to death, even though you are a believer, you are placing yourself in a very dangerous position where you're likely to fall into these kinds of sins. When we uh, think about being a Christian, we can say, yeah, we've died with the world to Christ. We can... uh, We've died to the world with Christ. Yeah, we can say we put off the old nature in him. Yet at the same time, we're not in heaven yet. We're living in this sinful world in a mortal body and we're exposed to all sorts of temptations and we've got these powerful desires within us that incline us to do the very thing that we don't ultimately want to do and the kinds of things that we know we should not do, which is one reason why even real Christians sometimes fall and That brings us really to the punchline of Colossians 3, 5, and 6. If you're a believer, you're a new creature. But that doesn't mean you're not going to be faced with temptation. And it doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted to sin in very grievous ways. So you need something more than just to know that these kinds of sins are wrong. And you need to know something more than just why they're wrong. You actually need to know how to win the battle against these temptations if they're going to live, if you're going to live a holy life in this world. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a plan. If you look at uh, Colossians 3 verse 5, the way Paul puts it, the phrase he uses as he writes the church is put to death. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. And what that phrase means is that uh, the fight against sexual sin, the fight for sexual purity, requires a daily, diligent commitment to destroying the sinful desires which remain in you and seek to control you. In other words, you've got to kill sin or it's going to kill you. That's what the word uh, Paul uses basically means. Sometimes you'll hear it translated mortify. You could translate it to slay. When you kill or slay or mortify something, what you're shooting for is complete destruction. You're not just trying to make it really, really sick. You're not just trying to wound it. You are attempting to destroy it. This is not a passive process. Paul doesn't say, lull your sin to sleep. He doesn't simply say, wait out your sin. He's talking about taking action and going on the offensive and viciously attacking the sin in your life. Murder it. And if you think that's a strong language, you ought to check out the way Jesus talked about dealing with sin in Matthew 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And both Paul and Jesus are making the same point, which is that if you're going to overcome sin, you're going to have to go against your feelings and do things that are sometimes painful. Sometimes people will call this the principle of radical amputation. Uh, And amputation means cutting something off. And uh, so obviously you don't normally want to cut your arm off. That's like 
not something that you would do. But if you're in a situation where if you don't cut your arm off, you're going to die, well, then you might need to make a radical choice. And the same is true in your fight against sexual sin. You might need to make radical choices. I remember my dad, he was a counselor and uh, he was walking by someone's office who was doing some counseling and he kept hearing that person say, where's the blood? Where's the blood? And my father thought that was a pretty strange thing to say. And so he asked him later, "Uh, what did you mean? Where's the blood? Where's the blood? And the man said, the person he was counseling was saying to him, oh, it's too hard. I can't overcome this sin. And so he took him to Hebrews 12, 4, which says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And he was like, if you're saying you've done everything, show me the blood. Where's the blood? And what he meant is there are a lot of times where people aren't overcoming sin, even though they say they want to, because they're not willing to make the kinds of sacrifices God requires for them to make to overcome that sin. I sometimes wish there was a a magic solution I could give uh, for overcoming sexual sin, but there isn't. If if you're not radically committed, if you're not willing to make difficult choices, it's going to be hard for you to overcome sexual sin and pursue purity. Remember, I was sitting down with someone, uh, and I had just met him, and he was crying. And he said, I've been born again, and I want to serve Jesus, but I'm looking at porn every day, and I want to overcome this. And I want to tell my pastor, but I'm not sure what he'll think, and so I'm, I, I don't think I can tell my pastor. And I said, man, you better talk to your pastor, because this is like poison or drugs that you're feeding yourself, and you're hooked, and you need help. And if you're not willing to make that small step to overcome I'm not sure if you're going to be able to overcome. This takes commitment. And uh, what's really sad is that many, many Christians, or at least many people who say they're, they're Christians, aren't willing to make the basic choices they need to make to move forward in this area. God's proven that he's good for, to them time and time again. He's proven he's wise. He's made the world. He he says, this is how things work best. He's proven he loves us by sending his son to die for us. He's proven he's serious about sexual sin. And yet there are people who are in church, who who say they, they love God, and yet they're not willing to trust God enough to do what he says. And they think they know better than he does. They think they can love themselves better than God does. And so they're always leaving a door open for the monster to come in. And I wonder if that's you. I wonder if that's you. And if that is you, you're going to pay the consequences for that. You really are. God's given us enough examples of this. I, I, as I'm sitting with the, the guy who is struggling with pornography and he's crying, you know, he's crying. I'm like, is this really bringing you the pleasure it says it will? Obviously not. This is a cruel slave master sexual sin. Leave it. It, it, dis, it dehumanizes people. It treats them like they're animals or objects. It keeps you from enjoying actual people. It turns you in on yourself. It steals your joy. And yet in spite of all that, I know even some people who say they're Christians who are still making excuses for the terrible way sexual sin is treating them, and they're not going to move forward until they become committed enough to do whatever it takes to kill this sin. Are you willing 
to do whatever it takes to kill sexual sin in your life, to put it to death. If so, you need a strategy. If you're going to fight against sexual sin, you need to think a little about how you're going to fight against it. And I want to help you make a strategy next time we talk. But for now, take a moment. Purity in in marriage. Agree, disagree. Of course you agree. It is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's uh, God's design for sexual relationships. But in this world as it is right now, purity is constantly coming under attack. How many marriages are destroyed? Or at least really, really, they really, really suffer because either the husband or wife is not truly committed to sexual purity. And so I want to ask you, are you? Are you committed to purity? And uh, how committed are you? If you're, not, if you're not committed, if you're living in unrepentant sin and uh, you're suffering and you, you don't think you can change, are you willing to ask yourself, is it because I haven't been born again? That may not be the reason, but that's one possible reason. On the other hand, if, you, if, if you're like, you know, I am born again. I, I'm trusting in Christ for salvation, and he has changed me, but I'm really stuck. Then the next question you need to ask yourself is, am I willing to trust God that this sin is as serious as he says it is? And am I... Am I going to put it to death? Am I willing to make difficult choices to pursue purity? If so, let's talk. Let's talk strategy. Let's talk plan. And we'll do that next time.